if you want to earn some money with this, then this is not just your hobby anymore. Of course, you can still practice it in your free time and that's all great. And you should keep doing that. You should keep doing some little things just for yourself or maybe some collaborations just to do some creative stuff. But if you also want to earn a living with it and have it as your profession, you do need to take that extra step and you have to take it seriously and you have to prioritize it because if not, no one else is going to do it. And if you don't value yourself, who is going to do it for you? Welcome to the Genius Women podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisyuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer with work in some incredible publications like National Geographic, Far Magazine, and more. And this year, you'll see my name in places like Condé Nast Traveler. I'm on a mission to help other women who want to grow their travel storytelling careers go after their dreams while feeling supported, worthy, and bold. If you're ready to ditch your fear and doubt to the side, step into your brilliance and take action on your dreams, you're in the right place. Let's go! Hello, dear listeners. Today, I'm very excited to share with you a conversation I did with Leoni Zaitune, a Morocco-based photographer from the Netherlands. I first met Leoni a few years ago on my last visit to Marrakesh, and we connected immediately over our love of photography, the colors of Marrakesh, and our outlook on life. In this conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, including the secrets to successful long-distance relationships, why it's difficult for many of us in the creative paths to charge our worth, and how living out your purpose can be a constant source of energy and inspiration. I enjoyed talking to Leoni so much, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Before we get to today's episode, do you have a question you'd like me to answer about travel journalism, creativity, working with our fears, or any other topic that's on your mind as you're listening to our show? All throughout the season, you can ask me a question and I'll answer it in a dedicated episode at the end of the season. Just visit geniuswomen.com slash question to submit yours. And remember that women is spelled as W-O-M-X-N. That's geniuswomen.com slash question. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, let's dive in. All right, Leonie, I am just so thrilled to welcome you to our podcast. I am such a fan of your work and I always message you on Instagram. Oh, I wish I was in Marrakesh right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And like I mentioned before, I'm honored to be on this podcast. Like seriously, between all these amazing women that you have interviewed before, I'm truly honored to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. The honor is all ours. So tell us, how are things in Marrakesh right now? Um, yeah, well, so-so, I guess I would say. It basically depends on where in the country you are, I would say, and also where in the city you are. As for Marrakesh, because that's pretty much the only experience I have now, because there are some travel restrictions within the country as well. So I've been only in Marrakesh for the past few months. I would say the new part of town, life is actually pretty normal. I don't really notice a difference with life from before COVID. 
apart from the fact that there are not that many foreigners, obviously, because there are barely any tourists. But other than that, life in the newer part of town is pretty okay. I would say restaurants are open, shops are open, people go to work, people go to school, people go to lunch or go, uh, well, dinner, not really, because there is a curfew. There is the mandatory mask wearing that you will notice. But other than that, new parts of town are, are pretty normal and life is okay. The old city center, like the Medina, is obviously a different story because that used to be the heart of tourism. And like I said, there are barely any tourists, even though borders are open. Anyone with a negative PCR test and a hotel reservation is welcome to enter the country, apart from a few countries that are blocked. But most people are allowed and, and welcome to enter the country, but there are so many lockdowns going on all over the world and travel restrictions. And so, yeah, honestly, I, I, I see a handful of tourists maybe in Medina now, and it, it's sad. It's, it's sad to see. Gosh, it must be such a different scene. I just always think of the Medina as such a bustling place full of people all the time. It must be so surreal right now to be there. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's why I have very mixed feelings. Like a part of me, and I will be very honest here, and that might sound super selfish, I kind of enjoy it as a photographer in that sense because I feel like I get the city to myself. I mean, you go to the beautiful gardens or places where usually there is like this huge waiting line to even enter and now there's nobody. So partly it, it's like a unique situation which we benefit, to be honest. But then at the same time, of course, it breaks my heart because so many people depend on tourism here. And without tourists for almost a year now, I mean, you can only imagine how devastating that is and, and how sad it is and hard. So yeah, very mixed feelings there. Very mixed feelings. Yeah, I understand. I mean, that's the thing that COVID showed. I think what a lot of governments, hopefully, if they are thinking ahead of their responsible governments, they need to start thinking about how to diversify, right? Like so many places around the world depend on tourism solely. And when something like this happens, it's just devastating. It's very fragile. It's very fragile. And then at least here we are in the big city, Marrakesh. So I do see people getting pretty inventive and starting to do other things that gives them a little money to keep providing their families. But yeah, the more rural areas like the desert areas or up in the mountains or the little coastal towns, that's a different thing that... I don't know what the alternative would be for them, but let's hope that they find a way to survive and overcome this. Yeah. And you mentioned before we started recording that there are some local initiatives that are happening. Uh, can you just tell us briefly about what those are? So there's a, a few of them. There is, for example, an American friend of mine. She, together with some other ladies, started an initiative for which they collect money to pay local artisans because, you know, artisans depend on tourism as well to sell their things um, so they had or maybe still have I'm not sure but at least during those hardest months they had this initiative in which they collected money for artisans and every month they would provide a huge group of artisans with some money so they at least could pay their rent and provide their families with food um, there is an initiative by a friend of mine from Holland who runs a nonprofit organization called Picala Bikes. They organize bicycle tours and educate young people from Medina on how to repair bikes or how to become uh, 
bicycle tour guides. Um, they teach young women how to ride bicycles. They had an initiative in which they bring food packages all over the Medina, not just in Marrakesh, but also in Agadir, I believe, and some other places. There's the ML Food Organization, which is an organization with Moroccan women who cook and help providing families with food. So there's a lot going on and even in the culture here itself, if you knock on a door and tell people you're hungry or you're in need of anything, people will help. In that sense, the, those are the good things. That's the good part. When the governments fail us, the communities step in. It's good to hear that at least there is some support on the ground and this is happening. But let's turn to you now because I'm sure our listeners too are very thrilled to get to know more about you and your story. And for our listeners, I met Leoni when I went to Marrakesh. In my last time, I was in Morocco and I absolutely loved connecting with her. She's such a brilliant photographer. We went to that amazing place. So I can't remember the name now of that restaurant. Yeah, there was a nice little restaurant that we met. And I, I remember the, the very first moment. I felt so comfortable talking with you. And we had so many things, reliable things. Like we could relate in a lot of things. Let's dig into Leonie's story. So... I would like to start with this chat where I usually started, which is tell me, what were you dreaming about as a child? Wow, as a child, I was a very dreamy child. So I had a lot of dreams and they were all over the place. But I remember very early when me and my best friend, we had a huge imagination and fantasy. And I remember we, we played like we were journalists and researchers going on adventures and the adventure was like in the garden of my neighbors but that didn't matter we we were playing around with my father's typewriting machine and making our own little journals and newspapers and so I, I at an early age I was dreaming about traveling and writing and you know things like that I had this huge imagination at a certain point we used to always play school and teacher like we would collect her little sister and her friends they would be our students and we would pretend to be teachers we did a lot of things but um yeah it was definitely more like teaching was a thing i was dreaming of and creative things like writing and traveling and drawing i love drawing as well even though i wasn't really good at it but i enjoyed doing it i read a lot of books so I loved storytelling and stories, but like an actual, like specific thing in mind, like some kids have, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want, no, I, I had a lot of things on my mind <laughs> that I just enjoyed doing. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to become, but I did know at an early age, which things interested me, which things I liked doing. What was it like growing up in Holland? I mean, it depends on where you grow up, I guess. I, I grew up in a very tiny village in the east part of the Netherlands, near the German border, not so far from cities as Oberhausen and Dusseldorf. It was a tiny village. I believe in my days when I was young, maybe there were like a few hundred people, five or eight hundred people. That was probably, yeah, that was probably it. Um, but it was nice. I mean, now at, at my current age now, I would never want to go back to live there. But as a kid, it was great. We were so free and it was safe and there was so much space and there was nature all around us and everybody knew each other. It was like such a tiny village, like all generations growing up together and knowing one another. And yeah, it, it was nice. It was safe. 
it was very safe and fun and I could literally just cross the street and I'd be at school like the school was right in front of my house the primary school my my friends were literally around the corner because there were only like what 10 streets yeah we were, we could play in the streets in the fields in the forest without a problem Yeah. And I think there are like certain phases of our lives when environments like this appeal to us, you know, because it's interesting, like throughout my travels, I, I love places where I can be feeling that sense of discovery and a lot of things going on and something always happening. But then there are always also times when I stay in places like this and then I imagine what would it be to live in a place like this? And sometimes that appeals quite a lot to me. It's like that safe harbor. Yeah, I mean, I do appreciate it still in a way. Like every now and then when I go back to Holland, I really do appreciate the fact that it's so calm there and, and clean and spacious. And especially now with this whole COVID situation going on, I'm like, thank God my parents live in this tiny little place because it's a whole lot safer for them. And it calms my mind whenever I'm there and it brings back all these nice childhood memories. But, you know, at the same time, when I spend a week or two weeks over there, I also feel this urge to go back to where it's all happening, you know, like to have all these facilities around the corner, things I need in my daily life, which we don't have in that little village. It's nice, but I, I do need this city at a certain point as well. How did you, from being in that village and playing with your friends and your school is across the street to then becoming a Spanish teacher? Was that something that you selected while you were there or did you go on to study somewhere else or how did that happen? No, I took the long way. <laughs> like I said, as a kid, I didn't really have a clear vision of what I wanted to become. I just knew the things I enjoyed doing. So I remember when I finished high school at the age of, what was it, like 17 years old, I, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I mean, come on, I was 17. What do you know when you're 17? Uh, and especially back in the days, I mean, internet just came out when we were 15. We didn't have all the resources kids have nowadays, probably. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. The only thing I knew was that I love languages and I love working with the computers. I love geography. But still, I didn't know what I wanted to do, basically, after high school. And then I just followed my best friend. I just did whatever she did. And she went to a school where you could study to become a management assistant. So yeah, that was something with languages, it was with computers, and I figured out, you know, I just follow her because the things you learn there are probably skills I could use throughout my life, so you know, I'm just gonna go and follow her. So that's what I started with, and that took two or three years, I believe. So I finished when I was 19 years old and I had figured, okay, I'm not ready for the working life yet. I mean, during that career, we had to do some internships and I figured like, no, this is not it. I have to do something else. There's more than just this. And then I figured I could go ahead. And at that same school, they offered also a career in tourism and leisure. And that's where my interest for Spanish actually really started. Because they would offer Spanish and German and English. And in the very last year of that career, we did an internship abroad. And you could pick your own country wherever you wanted to go to. And I picked Spain together with a friend of mine. Uh, we did an internship in Barcelona. So I went to Barcelona for, I believe, about six months. And I would work at a hotel. And that's where I actually really started digging deeper into the language. I, I knew I really enjoyed learning the Spanish language during 
school time and I was pretty good at it, I'd noticed because I had always loved languages. Was pretty much the only thing I was really good at <laughs> languages. Um, and while I was there in Barcelona during all this time and making all these friends, you know, Spanish friends and Latin American friends, I really started digging deeper into that language. And and I learned the language a whole lot faster, obviously, when you're in the country where they speak the language. And so at the end of that internship and also at the end of my tourism and leisure studies, I felt this city is calling me. I want to be here. I have to go ahead and do something that will allow me to live here and to build up a life here. And I had seen some of my teachers to come and visit us during those internships, like the sort of coaches and supervisors. And I was like, maybe I could do something like that. What if I go ahead and study Spanish full time? perhaps become a teacher, I can maybe start a language school here in Barcelona or also be a coach or a guide for other interns that come here. So that's when I made the decision to go ahead and study for a bachelor's degree in Spanish language and teaching in Spanish language. And so I had to go back to Holland And it it was pretty interesting because I had never thought I would actually go ahead and do that because I had to go study at a university. And I was actually the first one in my family who went to do that. None of my family members ever went to go study for a bachelor's or a master's degree. I had always this idea in my mind, like, that's not for me. You don't do that. That's only for, you know, the really smart kids or the kids from the rich families and the rich parents or the city kids that what am I going to do there? I'm just this country girl from an average family. Like, oh, (laughs) no one ever did that in my surroundings. But I decided still to go ahead and do so because I had this vision, like I want to be in Barcelona and I need something that will make it possible for me to find a job here and do something I enjoy. And so that's when I started the Spanish teaching studies and career. Wow. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I didn't know that you lived in Barcelona. We have to speak more about that. What, what I'm just amazed to hear is that, first of all, like when, what you said about when you were first studying to become a management assistant and then quickly realizing that... Is this all there is? This is not really for me. I think this is something that I'm picking up as a thread in a lot of the interviews that I'm doing where people are going down a certain path and then having the sense that there is something else out there for me or whatever this is, is not for me. And yeah, it's it's just interesting to me because I'm starting to see the thread that a lot of people are because, you know, I was the same way too with my marketing job. And, and I think then having the courage, I think, and the bravery to say, okay, what else? What else can I do? And that's hard. Yeah, I still don't even know how that happened or what it was that I actually decided to go a little further because most of all of the kids I went to primary school with, they all followed that same path, especially in the countryside um, where you finished your high school and then you choose a certain career at some vocational kind of education. You become, you, you study something for two or three years and then you're done when you're 19 or 20 years old and that's it. You find your partner 
you go to work full time, you get married, you buy a house, you have children and, you know, and you stay in that same area or maybe a village a couple of kilometers further away. But, you know, the whole life is basically there and they stay at that very same job that they got right after they finished their education. And I don't know what it was in me that I figured that I don't want this. This is not for me. I want something else. I want to discover a little more because there is more out there. But um, I'm, I'm glad I did, though. But I, I cannot really point the finger at what it exactly was or who inspired me to do so. I'm, I'm not really sure about that anymore because it's quite a while ago. But, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. I think what I'm seeing, at least what I'm picking up, and again, this is interesting because it's like giving me this uh, unique point from which I see all these different, like you said, patterns emerging from all these uh, conversations that I'm doing, is that I think what unites us in some way is that we have this curiosity for the world. And I don't know where it comes from for each of us. Maybe it's just our personality. Maybe it's something that was there in our childhood. I don't know. But it seems like that's a, a common thread, that we all have this curiosity for what else is out there. The world is so much bigger than this one little town or this one little path. That's awesome. Okay, so you went and you studied Spanish in the university and you became a uh, Spanish language teacher. However, now you are this amazing photographer in Marrakesh. <laughs> what happened in between? <laughs> How did that unfold? Yes, what happened? <laughs> oh God, we have an hour, right? So we have some time. <laughs> we have some time. Okay. Can we get yeah. some minty? Some minty? Yeah, sure. <laughs> let's, let's order something. No, this is quite a story, I would say. So the thing was, during that studies, during that career at university, there, there were a lot of exchanges with Spanish-speaking countries, because, of course, if you want to study a language, you also have to spend time within the places where they speak that language. So there were a few exchanges, and it was back in 2011, if I'm correct. Yeah, because it's almost 10 years ago now that I met my nowadays husband, because he's the reason I'm here to spoil a little bit of the story. Uh, my friend and I from university, we decided to do an exchange to Madrid, the capital of Spain. And we would spend about three or four months there, if I'm correct. Um, but it was not an exchange as in you would have to go to university or follow classes. It was basically a period they wanted you to be in a Spanish-speaking country, adapt yourself in that place, pick up the language, and do a few little tasks for university. That was basically the thing. So we had tons of time. And we both already had spent quite some time in Spain uh, like I said, me with the tourism studies that I did before, I was in Barcelona for quite a while and I traveled Spain a little bit. She had done some other studies before as well. So she had already seen quite a lot of Spain. And for some reason, we both had an interest for Morocco. I don't know where that came from, but we both were curious to visit Morocco. And, you know, Madrid, Marrakech is like, what, a two hour flight? Not even, I believe. Um, and back at that time, I remember the flight tickets were so cheap. I think we had tickets for 50 euros. <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous, actually. But so we decided, you know, like, okay, we have time. We're here. Let's just go to Morocco for a couple of days. Let's go to Marrakesh. And so we did. I believe the first time we went for like about five days. And that's when I met my nowadays husband. And we got along throughout those days. And he and his friend would show us around in a very cool and easygoing way. 
they would care of us. They took us around. They showed us the most beautiful places. And it was, those days were amazing. Like, I remember when we eventually got back in Madrid after those days, my friend and I were like pulling our suitcases, almost crying in the streets. Like, what are we doing here in Madrid? Madrid is so boring. Like, Madrid is not boring. But um, so, yeah, that, that day when we sort of fell in love during those days. And, you know, then there comes the moment you have to go back home again. And the question was, will we ever see each other again? And I instantly said, yeah, I'll be back. And I did. I believe it was three weeks later, I already came back to Marrakesh. And again, we spent time together and it really felt good. There was a real sincere connection. And I knew that was something special. I knew that straight away because I had never been the type of girl with boyfriends or anything. So for me to really feel that feeling, that was something intense and something very special. So long story short, from there, we ended up having this long distance relationship for six years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, traveling back and forth. Luckily, I eventually ended up working as a teacher. We were both still studying when we met each other. So that gave me the opportunity to visit Marrakesh quite often, about maybe six times a year during all these school holidays. In between, he would come to Holland every now and then to visit me there. And then after later on, I went working as a teacher. So I kept my holidays, which was good. And I was lucky with that, obviously, because there is a vacation every two months, I believe. So every two months, I would travel to Marrakesh. And in between, like three or four times a year, he would come see me in Holland. And that's the way we did it for, like I said, six years. Long distance relationships are so difficult. And the fact that you guys were able to keep it up for six years, that really speaks a lot about how both of you were committed to making this work, right? Yeah, it, it is a very long time. I mean, when I hear other stories of long distance relationship, that's usually for about a year, maybe two years, and then they make a decision and someone moves to that other country. But in our case, yeah, like I said, we were both still studying when we met each other. I still had two more years to go and Sufyan was still studying. He still had another year to go, I believe. And then afterwards, the thing I'm actually really happy about that we did that, maybe not even intentionally, but that just happened was we took our time to figure out and see what life could bring us in our own countries after we had finished our studies, you know, to see what options we would have. Me in Holland, would I be able to find a job as a teacher once I finished? For him as well, would he be able to find that job that he wanted? And, you know, we really took the time to see what options we would have in life and to take that time which I think is important to to not make these decisions too drastically I would say I'm glad we did that and, and throughout those years we really got to know each other as well because you know long distance relationships are basically based mainly on communication so that was really good and and like I said through those six years I visited Marrakesh like I don't know how many times a year so I got to know the city and the culture and his family and his friends and his life here And the same goes for him. He got to visit Holland pretty often and, and know my family and my friends and really see and experience what my life was like there, which I think is really important if you're in a mixed relationship in that sense, when you're a mixed couple, to really see and understand both cultures. 
as I'm listening to you saying all this, I'm thinking Leone has to write a book about long-term relationships <laughs> and how to make them work. I mean, long-distance relationships. I don't have the secret ingredient or recipe. I guess I'm really lucky with my husband as well because he's an amazing man. So that might be good. And, and both of our families have been amazing and super supportive. So that's very important too. You, you need that support and that backup, I would say. It helps a lot. But I don't have the secret ingredient. But if I could give one advice, is please, do take that time please do take that time to just discover and really get to know each other and each other's countries and cultures and then figure out what would be the best way and the best path <laughs> yeah no for sure i love that i love that okay eventually you moved to marrakesh and you became uh, a photographer so how did that happen how did you go from uh, being an educator to being a photographer Yeah, that's another long story. I mean, I never had the intention, to be honest. It never crossed my mind I could become an actual photographer. I had photography as a hobby. Back home in Holland, it would be a way for me to just clear my mind from the stressful job I would have because it was a very intense job. Because I was teaching in one of the poor neighborhoods of a bigger city and it was a school with students with a lot of problems a lot of issues a lot of drama so I was more of a social worker I would say rather than a teacher so photography for me was really a way to escape from all these thoughts from all these sorrows to just be in the moment focus on the picture and the settings and it, it was a really a passionate hobby to me and um, because it was I was so passionate about it I mean I never studied photography I never went to a photography school or anything but I did do a workshop I remember that was one a weekend uh, where you got like theory in the morning and then later in the afternoon you would go and practice with your group and your teacher which that just that workshop really taught me how to work manually with a camera and then I did when I moved to Marrakesh eventually I figured that you know what Marrakesh is so photogenic and I've taken so many photos here throughout the years but always with an old little camera super low quality photographs you know I can do better I want to do better so I decided to buy a new camera right before I moved to Marrakesh and photography to me in that sense was still just a hobby but it was also a way for me to push myself to go out because me myself I'm rather introvert and I'm highly sensitive as well so I don't like groups of people I don't like networking I'm just you know I love being by myself I'm very uncomfortable taking the initiative to meet people, for example. That's just something I've always struggled with, being a super introvert. But in photography, I found a way to push myself to go out. Like I would never, especially in the very beginning when I just got to live here, I would never just go out and walk just to walk around like I would feel awkward. You know, that would be me like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Why am I walking here? You know? But with a camera in my hand, I had a purpose to go out and walk around the city because I wanted to take photographs. And that at the same time was a very nice way to discover my new hometown by myself, other than being the frequent visitor together with my husband walking around. No, I really had to build up a life here now. I have to go out by myself. I have to discover the city myself as well and get comfortable walking around here by myself. So the camera, in that sense, for me, was a tool to push myself to do so. Then I decided to create an Instagram account, which I did not have back then. 
which is four years ago we talk about. I was 2017 when I moved to Marrakesh. And I started posting those photos, but just for fun, just for my family and friends back home so they could see where I was at, what I was doing. And then it started happening actually that a former colleague of mine from Holland who also had an online blog and did some influencing work, she reached out to me and she asked me like, hey, Leonie, I'm going to Marrakesh anytime soon. I would love to to meet you there and see how you're doing there. And when she came, it actually happened that the girl who traveled with her, who was supposed to be her photographer, got sick. She had some food poisoning and she was really not able to go out and take photos. So that friend of mine asked me, would you mind taking photos of me? Is that something you could do? Because I see you take nice photographs of Marrakesh. But can you also take photos of me? Because I'm in desperate need of a photographer. <laughs> um, which I was kind of shocked. I was like, oh my God, I've never done that before. I mean, I've taken some photographs of my parents, but that's pretty much it. But um, I said, yes, why not? I mean, I was happy to go out and enjoy the city with someone I knew because I didn't really have any friends yet back then. Because it wasn't pretty much in the beginning, when, I, like in the first two or three months when I just got here. Is, is that when you started to see that this could be a viable thing for you to do and it could be more than a hobby? Yeah, not even yet. Still not yet. I, my eyes were really closed, but it actually started happening. When she started posting those photos, eventually, I started receiving more requests. I received messages on Instagram from influencer friends from her who would also visit Marrakesh and who also wanted to have some photographs taken. And I was just enjoying it. To me, it was just a way to, you know, meet some people from my home country, speak a little Dutch again, show them the city, show them around because I had gotten a little more comfortable in this new town and, and I felt useful, you know, that was basically it. I felt useful because, you know, when you give up your job, I think you discuss this with other women, when you give up your job and you have to build up a new life, it's like you lose a part of your identity and I started to feel kind of what am I gonna do now I'm, I, I'm not able to teach Spanish here because everything is French um, you know so Spanish is not very useful when it comes to teaching what am I gonna do here I lost that part of my identity and when I was walking around with these bloggers and, and models from Holland taking their photographs and showing them the pretty places in the city I, I really felt useful and I was really enjoying it but I didn't earn any money with it, nor did they offer it. Everything for exposure. <laughs> there was a phase on Instagram where everything was done in exposure. And I'm so glad we moved away from that phase because it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> it is, but I didn't even know any better because like I said, at that point, I still had not opened my eyes. It was still just a fun little thing for me to do because I just enjoyed it. I still did not catch that idea of, oh, I could make this my work, you know? That only happened probably half year later, I would say, when I received a message from an American girl, uh, a jewelry designer, who wrote me a message that she would be in Marrakesh and she wanted to have some photos taken and what I would charge per hour. And I was like, what? I can charge for this? And I was shocked. I was like, oh, okay, but how much do photographers charge? I had no clue. I didn't know anything about it. So I started Googling and I was like, what? No, this is not me. I cannot ask this money for that. I, I am not that experienced. This is just a hobby. <laughs> um, 
but that's how it started though I, I just started charging just little amounts just for the sake of charging something and just to see from there on how it would develop but that was the eye-opener to me that was like okay I can charge some money for this if I go and set my mind to this if I go and learn more about this type of photography and ask some little amounts of money for it and start investing in it this could become a thing and that's when I found like okay this is what I want to do this is going to be my objective for now amazing amazing and I think it helped also that you were in this incredible city that a lot of people were starting to Marrakesh I remember now Marrakesh is something that everybody knows but I feel like on Instagram specifically like four or five years ago is where everybody all of a sudden wanted those Marrakesh pictures with all those beautiful arches and the pink walls. That's absolutely true because I remember during those six years when I was traveling up and down here, you didn't see that type of tourism. You would see like families with children or the more experienced travelers or the people that came for cultural reasons and for architecture. It was in those last couple of years, let's say from 2017 to 2019, I would say, or maybe even a little earlier when Marrakesh really became a thing on Instagram. It became so booming for people to be there and to have photo, you know, photographs there on all these beautiful gardens and, and places and riads. So yeah, that definitely helped a lot. In that sense, I'm very lucky to be here. And it's a very inspirational place. And it, it's, you know, you've been here, like, your senses are constantly being tested here. There's colors, there's smells, there's beauty everywhere. And it's, yeah, a very interesting city in that sense to to photograph. It is. It's it's so beautiful. So you, you mentioned something that I'd like to just uh, hear more uh, a little bit about. You said that at the beginning, when, when you realized that you could be charging for it, but you still felt this is just a hobby for me, or, you know, I'm just going to charge for the sake of charging. What did you do to move through that phase and to start thinking, no, this is my work. I am a photographer and I'm going to charge my worth. And this is who I am and this is what I do. I'm really interested in that transformation because I feel like a lot of us start there. We're like, oh, can I really charge for this? I didn't train in photography. I'm just starting. Who am I, right? Well, I mean, I, I still had those feelings pretty recently. I mean, it, it's only been, let's say, since this year, actually, or maybe last year that I feel more confident in charging the first two or three years, I really was not confident in doing so. But the reason I did start charging little by little, a little bit more and more was because I started learning about photography. I was literally binge watching YouTube all day, every day to learn everything about in that first place, portrait photography. Um, and as I learned about it and started experiencing it, because I started doing more of these sort of model and portrait shoots here in town, I also noticed that I needed a little more if I wanted to grow as in equipment and software and an online course to learn even more. But how am I going to do that? How am I going to pay for all that? You know, photography is expensive. Let's be honest. It's not the cheapest hobby there is out there. So um, in order to grow and as I started learning of things I would also need, I figured that, okay, but I do need some money then as well. And this is the way I can start earning little bits of money. And 
those little bits I started earning, I also immediately invested in eventually a new camera because I needed a new one, uh, an extra lens because I wanted to have a more versatile lens in software because I wanted to start and learn editing in Photoshop and Lightroom. I wanted to build a website eventually. You know, all these things cost a lot of money. Even though I felt uncomfortable charging and I had no clue how much to charge because I don't have photographer friends and yeah of course I could go ahead and google and I would hear these YouTube photographers talking about their rates but they are way more experienced so of course they're going to charge a lot more but I felt I'm just still a beginner I don't know all this I'm not entitled to all this money yet so you didn't see a person like you represented in that realm and so it was difficult to imagine what that would look like yeah very difficult so for the sake of being able to keep investing little by little that's when I started charging little by little like literally (laughs) so it sounds like that was your way to justify this mental game that we play I need to charge this money so that I could support my my continuous education in this field and getting better yeah, exactly, because it, it doesn't fall out of the sky. If I really want to take this more seriously and become more professional, you need some extra equipment and you need that extra software and, and you need those things. And that was the way for me to pay for it. I think you just said something really important that I want to uh, pull out a little bit. And this is actually a conversation that we recently had in uh, the, the Circle, which is a membership that I have for women in travel media. But we were talking about, we have to start treating this work seriously, treating our writing work seriously, treating our photography work seriously, because until you start treating it seriously, it's not going to turn into a serious work for you. It's almost like you have to start consciously making choices about treating this work seriously and because then it influences everything that you do on a daily basis you know for example somebody was telling me in our membership that they don't have the time during the day to sit down and to pitch a publication to me this is about priorities and to me this is saying well this thing is not as important to me than everything else that i'm doing during the day and so naturally then you don't include it in your working hours and you try to do it at night or on a weekend. Whereas if you start treating it seriously, then you say, no, this is important for me. This is a priority. So I'm going to book a, an hour every Wednesday to do this work. And what you said, it, it sounded similar to me because it's like, if I want to be serious in this profession, here are all these steps that I need to take. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's because I would see those YouTube photographers talk about that as well, you know, because it's it were not just videos and Thank God I discovered YouTube in that sense. I knew YouTube from watching music videos, but I had no clue back then of all this that was I was able to find. But these people not just talking about photography as in learning about composition and lightning and settings and equipment, but also about the business side of photography and the certain mindset that you need in taking this seriously. If you want to earn some money with this, then this is not just your hobby anymore. Of course, you can do still practice it in your free time, and that's all great, and you should keep doing that. You should keep doing some little things to, just for yourself or maybe some collaborations just to you know do some creative stuff. 
But if you also want to earn a living with it and have it as your profession, you do need to take that extra step and you have to take it seriously and you have to prioritize it because if not, no one else is going to do it. And if you don't value yourself, well, who is going to do it for you? But again, I'm saying this now, but I'm honestly, I'm still struggling with it nowadays. Like whenever I receive an email or a request for a photo shoot, I still sort of feel this obstacle inside of me like, okay, here I go. I'm going to write it and I'm going to write down my rates. And it still feels kind of awkward in some sense. The more you do it, the more easy it becomes, obviously. Yeah. And I, I talk about it as a muscle that we have to practice. And I think for me, it's comforting, actually, to know that other women who are on a similar path also go through this. So it's comforting for me to know that you still experience it. I still experience it too. You know, I still, when I pitch a new publication, I, I have this like sinking feeling in me. Oh, they're going to see that I'm an imposter. I just wonder why does this happen? Particularly, I think, with creative jobs, because does a dentist hesitate to send out his invoice or does a doctor hesitate to send out an invoice or, you know, I don't think so. Oh my gosh, this is a huge conversation that we, we could get into. Why do creatives feel this way? I sometimes even talk about it with my husband when I have one of these little frustrations where I feel like in a conversation with a potential client, I feel like I have to explain and defend why I'm charging a certain amount of money for my services. And I'm like, why am I trying to defend this? Yeah, I'll explain them to hopefully maybe educate them a little bit on what photography is at the end of the day. It is a lot of work. It's not just clicking a camera like you would with your iPhone. We invest a lot of time in just learning this. We invest a whole lot of money in our equipment. We invest a lot of time in the whole post-processing. It's not just this one photo shoot I'm doing and then it's done. I spend days and days to give you those final results. And guess what? Those final results are also actual products that you can use for your benefits. Because nowadays I'm doing a lot more product photography, so... You know, those are photos people use for their commercial purposes. So all that is value. And I don't know why in creative industries we have to explain and defend that. I don't know why that is. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, I think my theory is that just if you look at in general how societies and structures have evolved, this was never valued. A dentistry job was a very tangible, very specific job with a specific outcome, whereas creativity, arts, it, it, from the beginning, it was never something that uh, was valued as a, you know, stable job or secure job. It was so intangible, so, uh, so vague, I guess. And I think the, the other thing, it's becoming better now, but I think it's, it's about that education, right? And it's about the people that we work with. I, I think more and more now, they're also starting to see the, actually, everybody needs images now for social media. You know, everybody needs images. So it's becoming an easier conversation, but probably even four years ago, there was a different expectation that, oh, this is just a photo, like, I, I, I don't need to pay. It's not that important. <laughs> no, and also I think because images have become that important nowadays and also because of all of these expensive phones that we're using with the latest camera technologies that take great photographs as well, not the same as with actual cameras, but 
so many people are used to taking photos. You know what I mean? As if it, it, it's as if they start feeling as if photographing is something you just do. It's just like that. Just like I do it with my iPhone and everybody does it. It's just a hobby. It's not a profession. What did you learn for it then? Because everyone can take photos and it's not that. <laughs> but I guess you only really know and understand once you're in it, you know? But For sure. And I, I think the other thing is then... Also, finding a way for yourself to attract the types of clients you want to work with who will understand the value. Because the people who think that I can do this on my own, they're not your clients. No. And that's and you really just hit the spot right there, I would say, because this was a lesson I just recently learned and I recently started doing by saying no. Like there was a period when I started out, I felt like I had to accept every request I would receive just for the sake of experience, for the sake of money. And who am I to say no? I should be happy that they approach me. You know, I, like I felt like I was, wow, I was flattered people would reach out to me. And I still am, don't get me wrong. I still am. But I'm no longer saying yes to every single request I'm receiving because I sort of, you know, worked on a little sort of extra sense, I would say. I start feeling which type of people I'm communicating with. And, you know, just by the way they talk or how they approach me, I already kind of feel like, who am I dealing with? And is this the type of client that I'm aiming for? Or is this going to be drama? You know what I mean? So uh, I've learned to say no as well. And by saying no to certain requests, I think I'm headed in a direction where I'm slowly but surely working towards the dream clients, which is one of the goals, obviously. I love that. And it's an evolution for sure, right? I think with the podcasts that we do and with any kind of other stories that you can listen to, I think the point is really to take these notes from all that we kind of went through and what we've learned. But at the end of the day, I think we all go through these similar phases almost when we start. And maybe somebody who is listening to this now, maybe their phases will be shorter. So they will be able to transform faster to those areas where we feel more confident, where we are charging what's worth, where we're working with people who we really want to be working. And like you said, importantly, saying no to things that don't align. So these are all, yeah, these are all insights and pointers. But at the end of the day, you have to go through this journey and for some, that journey goes a lot faster than for others. For me, it's still going on. There are many photographers out here, and I still kind of feel like this underdog photographer, and I'm still very, um, you know, sometimes even scared. Like, even when I want to post a photo on Instagram, I'm like, shall I post this? Shall I not? Is this good enough? Is this not good enough? And, you know, I still have so many insecurities I'm dealing with because I, I still consider myself just a beginner in these industries, which... I feel like I am because it's only been, what, two years since I've really been doing this more seriously and, and started charging more seriously and investing in it. So I'm still a beginner in that sense. Gosh, Leonie, your images don't look like a beginner. I'm just looking at your photography right now. And everybody who's listening, please go check it out too. We'll link to it in the notes. Incredible images, uh, so poignant and so beautiful. So you, in my eyes, you're not a beginner at all with your vision and your style and your execution. It's it's just incredible. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm honored. If I have you as a fan, then that means a lot, honestly. Yeah. 
Yes. Gosh, we could speak a lot more. And we could have an extra hour. <laughs> we'll have to do this again. Maybe next time I'm, I'm in Marrakesh, we could record something. That would be fun. We do a part two. <laughs> yes. But tell us what's bringing you joy uh, right now in this difficult time with respect to photography and your journey? Well, there has been a shift in, in a good way, I would honestly say, as crazy as that may sound in these hard times. And sometimes I actually feel really guilty for it because I know so many people are suffering. But this past year, I, I spent the part of the lockdown actually in Holland to be with my parents because I wanted to be there for them because you know the situation was pretty scary and they're older. So I wanted to be there with them. So during this first whole lockdown period, I invested a lot in myself because I had to do a lot of work on me personally, like you know, dealing with all these anxieties and all my fears and insecurities and making up my mind about how to deal with those. So I've been reading a lot. I've started practicing yoga. I did a lot of walks every day in nature just to clear my mind and prepare myself for the day when I would go back to Marrakesh to hopefully come back as a different person. And I was worried though, because before COVID started, indeed, I did mostly portrait kind of shoots with models or bloggers but also personal branding shoots with women who run businesses here. I used to shoot female retreats, which are very popular in Marrakesh. Um, but when I came back to Marrakesh, and that was in June or July, I was figuring like, okay, but all these people are not here now because tourism was still not welcome back then. The borders were closed. What am I going to photograph then? There, there's nobody here. So what am I going to do? Actually, it, it turned out pretty good because then I could really focus on interior and product photography because I started receiving a lot of requests from all these women, mainly women from all over the world who have these businesses where they source products here in Morocco and sell them in their home countries, they could still get these products being shipped from Morocco because that was still working. But they obviously still needed the photos and they could not be here themselves. Interesting. So for you, it actually worked out to be... It worked out good, to be honest. Yeah. And, and that's the thing I've been doing mainly since, let's say, past summer, since August, September. I've been doing a lot of these sort of styled product photography, uh, photo shoots of Moroccan rugs and cushions and pillows and styled them in these pretty riads. But that's what I've been doing basically ever since and that turned out pretty good for me so far so I'm focusing on that now and I'm really enjoying that because I love interior photography as well that's working out for now and but we will see what the future will hold when borders uh, or people at least tourists can come and travel again and hopefully I can go back to do more portrait photography as well since I uh, still love doing that too yeah no that's amazing that means you also sort of diversified your portfolio and now you're a more versatile creator right you're not dependent on just one or the other that's a choice i guess you make i just enjoy photography in general i mean there's certain things i don't want to do like i'm not a wedding photographer i'm not a couple photographer because like i said i'm rather introvert i'm kind of awkward between groups of people so that's not my jam but i did love taking photographs of riyadh's always and also with the moroccan rugs and poofs and the, the interior styled settings i always did enjoy that so yeah I, i i love these different styles of photography rather than just focusing on one specific style 
which can be a good option as well. For some, that really works well. If you really want to become a master at one specific field, that's awesome, obviously, excellent. But I just enjoy, I still enjoy too many things. Maybe as I go further into photography, I might make up my mind and really do focus on one thing. But for now, I enjoy doing all these different things. And if it works for now, it's all good. I'm happy. I'm thankful. Beyond thankful, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I'm looking at your images now on your website and just gorgeous lightning, gorgeous designs, everything. So I'm, I'm very, very happy for you. I think we're going to close, even though I would like to continue speaking to you. But yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do a part two. I want to close with this question that is a big one. But how would you start thinking about uh, what does it mean to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance with confidence today? That is a question. <laughs> But I mean, I cannot speak for other women, obviously, but if I just think of my own situation and what it would mean for me to step into my brilliance, I would say is the moment that I get in alignment with my purpose. When I really discovered that one thing that I want to do so much and I decided to go for it. And when you focus on those things, it's like things start flowing. You know, when the mindset is, is right and when you pick the right thing that really is inside your heart and that you feel passionate about, things start flowing. And, and that for me was the moment I feel brilliant when I'm in these photo shoots and, I, and they're going well and I'm enjoying the time with the person I'm doing the shoot with or at this beautiful location that I'm at. It gives me so much energy. Like even though I'd been shooting for seven or eight hours straight, I would go home and still be full of energy because it's, it's flowing, it's working, and I'm in alignment with my purpose. And for me, that's really stepping into brilliance. Let things flow and, and enjoy what you're doing. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's brilliant in itself. And I think that's exactly where we'll leave this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leone. No, thank you for having me and can't wait for a part two. Me too. Thank you so much for sharing an hour of your day with us today. I hope you found some inspiration in this conversation with Leone. And if so, please consider leaving us a review so that more listeners could find our show. Thanks again. And I'll see you next week for a conversation with a travel photographer, Nancy Lova.